Father in heaven, thank you for this week. Thank you for your blessings, for the beautiful day today. And please, Lord, guide us in these presentations, especially giving us wisdom um, from heaven to lead and help uh, this lot of people in this community of faith. Be with us in the presentation in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, yesterday at the beginning of the presentation, we were ending the presentation of the day talking about contradictions. We were um, presenting some, some, because the timeline cannot put all together, you know, some of the contradictions in between Mormon or LDS writings with their own literature, that is um, Doctrines and Covenants, Book of Mormon, and so on. And also we were working with contradictions with the Bible. And we were working the, the last of, of them regarding the place in which the Lord Jesus was born. And I've been, you know, suggesting ways in which we might be able to work with them, starting with that. So that's the third question, where Jesus was born. And, um, and that is quite interesting because um, the Bible got a different perspective uh, historically, and the book of Matthew was very clear, Bethlehem, and the book of Mormon, in the book of Alma, chapter 7, verse 10, says um, Jerusalem. And we were uh, talking um, in the presentation yesterday about how missionaries were outreaching people in, um, in countries abroad and dealing with that kind of situation that was the background of, of the controversy in, upon that. And we were reflecting about um, the difference in between the Bible and the Book of Mormon um, regarding, um, you know, um, uh, testimonies, uh, witness and scriptures, reference regarding places in the Bible and so on, and, and, and the problem with the Book of Mormon in which there are names, geographical places, river, rivers and cities and so on, but nobody can find them, and, and that is part of the problem with, with them. And today, in part of the presentation, I'm going to work out um, a little bit about the statement of the Smithsonian uh, Institution regarding that topic, because it is important that you know about that. Um, it, this, this, for me, is very crucial, because um, uh, Mormon says that um, there were inhabitants of Judea that reached America, and build up a new civilization, but there were no traces about that thing here in America. So um, what we are going to enter today is um, in, in other topics. One, one of the, po the points that we were talking before the presentation is the DNA, and in this moment the DNA, DNA studies are not helping them because um, Indian Americans are not Jewish background, and that is, um, it, it is, it is final. So, today we are going to enter 
in a little bit on the topic on um, the Book of Mormon and the background. Uh, yesterday, we were comparing view of the Hebrews, but not from my personal perspective, but from the vision of Brigham Henry Roberts, who is a historian, a Mormon leader, and basically, and I am recapturing the elements, um, there were a very big amount of, com of common elements between the book View of the Hebrews and the Book of Mormon. Um, the Jewish background is in both books, the destruction of Jerusalem, the uh, scattering of the inhabitants also, and, um, and several other elements we were presenting yesterday, and we were talking yesterday about that. But the, the main point here is that before that comparison, Brigham um, 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 uh, Robert says, the material of Ethan Smith's book is of a character and quantity to make a ground plan for the Book of Mormon. And it's, it's quite interesting because yesterday we were asking ourselves, did Joseph Smith know about the, that book? And, and we say yes, um, several reasons. And we were um, uh, at the end of the presentation uh, talking about, about the three or the two editions, the two editions of the view of the Hebrews in 1823 and 1825, um, uh, that is before the Book of Mormon, and the fact that Ethan Smith was a congregational pastor uh, of the Oliver Cowdery family, uh, and Oliver Cowdery was the secretary of Joseph Smith, and when he became the secretary in 1829, just in a few months, he finished the draft and the final edition of the Book of Mormon. Uh, the question was, he knew or not? And we say, yes, this is the times and the seasons. And, and you see under the name that is the editor, Joseph Smith, and and in the middle, you see, you see that he is quoting view of the Hebrews. So he knew about the, the book. Question. Anthony Smith and Joseph Smith. There are, there are only the same, name. same name. Smith, Smith, Smith name in, in uh, British and in, in USA is like Rodriguez in America. You are going to see, uh, you know, a lot of them. So, so now I'm going to enter into the topic of today because I've, I've been I've been promising about that, and uh, that is that is something for me for me uh, relatively new. That is the link and the connection in between Mormonism and uh, Spiritism. I I don't know if you if you had made that kind of connection before. But for me, let me tell you that was, um, was a discovery. One was the factor of that Hitsville, um, the place in which 
modern spiritism was born. I, I am talking about the Fox, the Fox sisters. It is just about nine miles from Palmyra. And in Palmyra, it is, it is, they, they cannot take Palmyra out of the geographical background because this is the first printing place for the Book of Mormon. And they do have a temple and, and it, it is about four miles or maybe so away from Hill Kumora place in which, you know, everything, according to them, started. So, the first is this connection. Ellen G. White says this, the doctrine of man's consciousness in death, especially the belief that spirits of the death return to minister to the living, has prepared the way for modern spiritualism. If the dead are admitted to the presence of God and holy angels and privileged with knowledge far exceeding what they before possessed, why should they not return to the earth to enlighten and instruct the living? If as thought by popular theologians, spirits of the dead are hovering around their friends on earth, why should they not be permitted to communicate with them, to warn them against evil, or comfort them in sorrow? How can those who believe in man's consciousness in death reject what comes to them as divine light communicated by glorified spirits? Here is a channel regarded as sacred, through which Satan works for the accomplishment of his purposes. That's very clear, very strong, very strong, strong quotation coming from Ellen G. White regarding this topic. The fallen angels who do his bidding appear as messengers from the spirit world while professing to bring the living into communication with the dead. The prince of evil exercised his bewitching influence upon their minds. Clear, strong. Great Controversy 551 is the page. Um, the point is not only Ellen G. White, of course, when, when we go to the Bible, the Bible prohibits any kind of contact with, with that. It's, it's in the law, I mean in the Torah. It is, it is in the book of Leviticus. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. It, that, that is a background very clear for that. And I'm going, going to read probably the, the, the last here, Deuteronomy 18.14. For these nations which thou shalt possess Hurricane and observers of times and unto diviners, but as for thee, the Lord thy God hath not suffered thee so to do. The, it is a very clear restriction for the people of the Lord 
not to go into that direction. So why, why some people is going to transgress, to overpass what the Bible says when there is a very clear prohibition in, in going into that direction? I'm going to show. I'm going to show, of course, at the end, because you are going to see an astonishing statement coming from one of the historians of Mormonism. Um, um, what is the background of this, of this point? Okay, what we know is that um, the official version of Mormonism is telling us that Joseph Smith received the visit of um, a messenger of the world beyond, speaking to him about hidden golden plates in Hilkumora. And uh, what we know is that these golden plates were given to Joseph Smith by, listen, an angel. And he translated that, those golden plates, and from that is the Book of Mormon. Okay? So without this encounter, we, or the world, or the Mormons, church, or Latter day Saints, never have gotten the the so-called Book of Mormon. So, it is interesting, this. The process of the encounter with an angel started around September, in between the 22nd and 23rd September, 1823rd. And the angel told Joseph Smith that there are a special revelation that he was selected for doing that work and that there were a final uh, release for him in September the 22nd, 23rd, 1827. So during four years, the prophet had to be in those days in the year in that place. It is interesting to know that Joseph Smith, in his personal autobiography, gives many details regarding this encounter. He provides the year, the month, the hours, and, and the timeline in which he was going to do that. You are not going to find so many details, I will say, um, regarding several other things. And... Um, and the official version says it's an angel. But it is quite interesting that in the bibliographical reference, you are going to see that Smith records that on September 22nd, 1823, that he, listen this, began to pray to commune to a kind of messenger. And keep this in mind, good English, to commune with a kind of messenger. Because you are going to find out that expression not only belongs to a Smith, it's only you, it's, it's also used, I wanted to say, with Oliver Cowdery says that a Smith began to pray to commune to a kind of messenger. And this is personal uh, mail from Cowdery to Phelps in the letter four, in the book four, 
in the pages 28-29, and that is in the book of G's about the uh, papers of Joseph Smith, volume 1, um, pages 50-51. To commune with a kind of messenger. What does it mean? Well, um, remember what we are going to need to do here is also to understand why this time it is important and also what might be involved here. Uh, let me share with you this. Um, um, let, me, let me start with the a, with a bottom line of the quotation. This is Dennis, Michael Quinn, Early Mormonist. And I recommend to you this book. It's quite interesting. Palmyra's Joseph Smith was not the only one who valued the date, September 22nd, to commune with some kind of messengers, he says. By the way, Michael Quinn, Mormon author. Okay? I am, I am using some references of people coming from inside the chart. Continue. In this in his complete system of occult philosophy, Robert C. Smith quoted from the recent experiences, recent for him, that is 1820-something, experiences of three of his occult protégés in London. And here is the quotation of this Robert C. Smith book. On the night of September 22nd, 1822, we resolved upon innovating the spirit of the moon and accordingly having prepared the circle and used the necessary ceremonies and incantations to urge the spirits more powerfully to be visible appearance. Our ceremonies began, look, at midnight. Within traditional magic lore, the tales of Smith's 1823rd visitation was, now Queen is speaking, consistent with the ritual magic's requirement for successful encounters with otherworldly beings. <coughs> You understand now what is with a kind of messengers here? Here the expression to commune with some kind of messenger appears in a book that is a manual for successful encounter with other wall beings. Quite interesting. I I when I when I discovered this I say, well, that, that is that is certain sense my understanding of the background. It is important also that we might be able to differentiate here astronomy with astrology. And, and, and please, I am, I, am, I am talking about this. I, I, am not, um, I am not trying to insult your intelligence, but, but some, some people sometimes do have um, some confusion in between the names of this, and um, astronomy is a science. 
Science means that is working with something that is repeated, that is, you are going to verify by the study of a discipline. And, um, and the name is coming from astronomy, uh, aster, star, nomi, that is law, coming from the Greek word, and the laws that regulate the star. That is the branch of the science which deals with celestial objects, space, and the physical universe as a whole. Sometimes, sometimes, uh, astronomy in the past, and especially with the Babylonians, it, it is intersected and is a mix with astrology. But astrology is a complete different game. Astrology, from the Greek also, um, uh, the logia of the asters, and, and you have the, the concept in Greek over there, is a pseudo-science that claims to divine information about human affairs and terrestrial events by studying the movements and relative position of celestial objects. Okay? So, to put it in, in frank and very simple English, astrology is connected with spiritism and occultism. Astronomy is a science, it's a discipline. Okay? So, let's, let's go forward. Here, here, we need to understand what is involved. Because in those, in those, in those dates, and, and the, this is the, the concept of, of, the, of the equinox and the solstice, and please, I am not an expert in this discipline, but, uh, but I need to refer, you know. Um, this is the time of September equinox. Equinox in March, equinox and solstice. Uh, that is the, in the middle of the year and in the end of the year. It's the time in which the closeness of the earth, um, you know, it is uh, to the sun, is going to um, operate. And uh, equinox comes with, from the Latin, two words, equi, that means equal, nox is coming from, from notri, that is connecting Italian Latin, that is night. So it's the moment of the year in which the day, time, hours equals with the time, hours of the night. So when you see a, an equinox in the streets, you are going to know now what does it mean, the, the brand of General Motors or whatever it is, you know. So that, that's September. Of course, this is, this is astrology or astronomy? This is astronomy. But, but, but astrology is going to use elements of that because in according to the books of astrology uh, guidance, the moment of that nine is the good moment for um, get involved in relationship with spiritual beings of the world beyond. 
in, in the vision of astrology, of course. So in the times of the birth of the Book of Mormon, there was an evident also magic world view background in America. And that is important to understand. It was in the culture and also in, in, in the Smith family. I, I, I was surprised to find out a lot of information regarding that. If we put the concept of encounter in between Moroni and Joseph Smith, who was Moroni? Who was the angel Moroni? He was an inhabitant of America that died, according to the Book of Moroni, in the Book of Mormon, chapter 10, verses um, uh, 34. And now Smith is talking with the spirit of him. How we call that? Necromancy. And remember, he, Smith, went to commune to a kind of messenger. So, he actually had an encounter, or did he just make everything up? Well, I, 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 I think that that is that there was an encounter with that. And 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 let me follow. Let me finish, and you are going to see the whole picture and the whole idea regarding that, because you are going to see that that this kind of connection it is it is important. Because um, okay, let me let me let me go forward, um, Queen. Let me quote this. Smith began praying late, Sunday night on, on September 21st, 1823, to commune, says, with a kind of messenger. Cowdery wrote that Smith began praying earnestly to commune with some kind of messenger. That Sunday night, about, watch, watch the timeline, in between 11 or 12, that is midnight, and Reginald Scott instruction uh, regarding the, the book of occultism instruction specified that the spirit conjurations um, should begin about 11 o'clock at night. So Smith is recording that he was going, uh, let, me, let me use a very clear and neat American expression. Is doing by the book. He is, he is by the book. So Smith's prayer on September the 21st, 1823, occurred once the moon reached it the maximum fullness the previous day and just before the autumn or uh, autumnal equinox. The full moon. Look this this information. The full moon was the preferred time for treasury digging. And this is not an accident, by the way, because he has been digging for treasurers, and there is and and there is there is judicial record about that. There is a record about that. It is important. It's an official, and that is that is in the records. And the civil records of, New, of, of the state of New York. If you are going to check on the internet, they are going to provide the information regarding that. So, so is there elements of connecting Mormonism and Spiritism? I will say yes. First, one is the geographical closeness of Heathsville, where 
Fox Sister started Spiritism, and Palmyra, that was the center of the first printing of the Book of Mormon. The magic worldview of the Mormon pioneers is astonishing, believe me. There are pages on the book of Mike, Dennis Michael Queen that is going to surprise you regarding this. Seer stones of Oliver Cowdery in the family of Smith, Herbert uh, Kimba, the magic parchment of the Smith family, Jupiter talisman and seer stone of Joseph Smith, seer stones of Jacob Whitmer, seer stones of Elizabeth and Whitney, patrilineal magic words of CBD Coltrane, the healing cane of William Richards, healing cloak of Herbert King, palm tree. You know what is palm tree, isn't it? The reading of, of the hands. It's very common, in, you know, when, when, when you see um, some people in, in foreign countries um, telling you or trying to read your future, reading your, you know, the palm of your hands. So the magic world, world view was very extended among the pioneers of Mormonism. And you see sea stones, magic words, healing canes, healing houses, magic clothes, charms, and counter charms, by the way. So is, is there a connection? Okay. Think about other things. Mormonists believes in life after death. They believe in three degrees of glory coming from, from Emmanuel Swedenborg's influence. Um, they do have secret rituals and practices in the temple where you find in any other religious movements uh, among USA that are going to be secret on their own practices, like baptism for the dead or, 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 the, or the marriage for eternity or something like that. They, they are holding that in, in the sanctuaries, in the temples. Commune with messengers of the other world. Joseph Smith say, we accept the through whichever be its origin. And this is, is, this is telling you about what is, what is the kind of connection. But besides that, uh, where you are going to find a church that is going to tell you that the most important ministry for them is to develop salvation for those who are dead. Because they do have a ministry for that. And for that reason is genealogy, to give you the names. And for that reason is, is all, the, all, all, all the things. Gerald Tanners and, um, and Gerald and Sandra Tanners are writing, and I put that in, in, my, in, my, in the first edition of, of the work, that somebody were um, uh, contemplating, watching a ceremony in a moment. Um, just give me a moment. Um, and, uh, and, and they were baptizing people, you know? But they were um, surprised to listen names of, of a former president of United States among those who were going to be baptized. Because they believe in the baptism for the death. Yes. 
I just wanted to clarify that term you said salvation for the dead. Ministry of salvation for the dead. This is you know, you know, you know, um, probably you know much better because some of you were in um, in, in in legal activities, teachers and, and professors, so you know I don't need to tell you what is a Smithsonian institution, you know. But understand please that um, a Smithsonian institution, uh, I don't know how to put it in a very short uh, phrase, but I am talking not only to you guys, but also with all the others who are going to listen to the presentation. And I, I need to clarify for, for those who are going to be illustrated regarding this topic, but this is like the attic of USA history. For, 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 for Putin in short, you know, um, is the place in which you are going to find out the first banner of the United States, the elements regarding history. Um, um, you know, uh, it, it is amazing the collection of information uh, um, in the Smithsonian Institution. And they made an statement, and I'm going to share with you the statement of the of them regarding the Book of Mormon. The Smithsonian Institution has never used the Book of Mormon in any way as a scientific guide. Just from the beginning, he's telling you what is the position of them. The Smithsonian archaeologists see no direct connection between archaeology of the New World and the subject matter of the book. No connection. Second, the physical type of the American Indian is basically mongoloid, being most closely related to that of the people of Eastern, Central, and Northeastern Asia. Archaeological evidence indicates that the ancestors of the present Indians come into the New World, probably over a land bridge known uh, to have existed in the Bering Strait region during the last ice age in a continuing series of a small migration beginning from about 25,000 to 30,000 years ago. This is the statement coming from there. It's not myself. I am quoting what the Smithsonian is saying here. Third, present evidence indicates that the first people to reach this continent from the east were Norsemen who briefly visited the northeastern part of the North America around 1000 AD and then settled in Greenland and there is nothing to show that they reached Mexico or Central America. Fourth, one of the main lines of evidence supporting the scientific finding that contacts with all world civilizations, if indeed they occur at all, were of little significance for the development of the American Indian civilization. It is the fact that note of the principal old world domesticated food plants or animals, except the dog, occurred 
in the new world in pre-Columbian times, American Indians had no wheat, barley, oats, millet, rice, cattle, pigs, chickens, horses, donkeys, camels before 1492. Camels and horses were in the Americas, along with the bisons, mammoth, mastodon, but all these animals became extinct about 10,000 years uh, before um, common era. At the time of the early big um, game hunters spread across the Americas. Of course, I am reading the Smithsonian statement here. Fifth, iron, steel, glass, and silk were not used in the new world before 1492. And they are mentioned this because the Book of Mormon mentioned that. It is coming from the Book of Mormon. And as Smithsonian says, I'm not denying anything we are stating about this. Iron, steel, glass, silk were not used in the new world before 1492. So, i.e., you take your decision regarding that, except for occasional use of unsmelted meteoric iron, native copper was worked in various locations in pre-Columbian uh, pre times, but uh, through metallurgy was limited to the southern Mexico and the Andean region where its occurrence in late prehistoric times involved gold, silver, copper, and their alloys, but not iron. And there is, by the way, well, let, let, me, let me avoid any kind of contamination with the Smithsonian Institution here. Six, there is a possibility that the spread of cultural traits across the Pacific and Mesoamerica and the northwestern coast of South America began several hundred years before the Christian era. However, any such interhemispheric contacts appear to have been the result of accidental voyage originating in Eastern and Southern Asia. It is by no means certain that even such contacts occur with the Asian Egyptians, Hebrews, or other people or of Western Asia and the Near East. Seven, no reputable Egyptologist or other specialist on old world archaeology and no expert on new world prehistory has discovered or confirmed any relationship between archaeological remains in Mexico and archaeological remains in Egypt. Eight, reports of finding of ancient Egyptians, Hebrew, and other old writings in the New World in pre-Columbian context have frequently appeared in newspapers, magazines, and sensational books. None of these claims has stood up to examination by reputable scholars. No inscriptions using all world forms of writing have been shown to have occurred in any part of the America before 1492, except for a new Norse, for a few, excuse me, Norse run 
stones which have been found in Greenland. And nine, there are copies of the Book of Mormon in the Library of National Museum of Natural History, Smithsonian Institution. And of the reference of the Smithsonian. But it's quite clear, the statement, by the way, regarding all the things that we were uh, mentioning here. So let's enter into a, a topic um, before finishing here. The relationship between the Bible and the Book of Mormons, uh, the Book of Mormon, and let me tell you that the Bible appears in the Book of Mormon in different ways. Um, I, I am trying to be compact in this because um, it is, this is very extensive information. You are going to get a kind of um, a lot of, of information on the internet nowadays um, regarding this. You are going to see in the Book of Mormon verses, fraction of verses, lexemes, uh, chapters, sentences, um, Jesus sermons, sometimes in, in, in the context, sometimes in extension, sometimes brief references, and of course, several King James Version transitions um, in, in the wording of that. Of course, in the same way in which we were talking across the week about the reference of Shakespeare in, 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 in the Book of Mormon, uh, you are going to find out that also. And, and I was wondering why, but uh, I suppose that um, before ending my presentation today, I'm going to give you uh, not only my, my personal perspective, but also uh, an educated guessing regarding that point um, that is important to get. The Bible works in, in the Book of Mormon as if English were the original language, by the way, because King James Version is very well represented, and I don't have doubt about that. You are going to see, for example, let me, let me put a few examples here. Book of Mormon, the Bible. Um, John 3.16, and you know John 3.16, so I, I, I don't know, uh, but... Um, it is, it is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And you go with the book of Mormon, that is Second Nephi uh, chapter 26, and you are going to see uh, in verse 24, by the way, this is, this is a quotation in, in the second book of Nephi that pretends to be coming from 559 before Christ. So technically the Mormons believe that John 3.16 was says in America before Jesus say in, 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 in the place, <laughs> you know, in the Sermon of the Mount. Um, and you are going to see that the concept, the idea that, that for the benefit of the world, for, for he loved the world even, and, and that phrase and you are going to interface those concepts across the book. And as Moses um, says, verse 14 in the book of John, as Moses lifts up the serpent in the wilderness, and you are going to see the same, um, almost same thing in the book of Elaman, chapter 23, verse 14, and it's coming from the 
third year before Christ. And he lifts up and says, the brazen serpent in the wilderness, uh, uh, even so shall be lifted up who should come, says in, in the book of Mormon. And you are going to see another, several other quotations and, and so on. So um, you are going to see conceptual uh, ideas. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, speaks about the mysteries of God. First uh, Nephi chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 2, 16, mysteries of God. And um, Revelation 15, uh, 3, and First Nephi chapter 1, 14, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God Almighty. Same kind of references. You are going to see Mark chapter 3, verse 5. Hey, uh, it, uh, it is plenty of that. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know if it's necessary. I, I just give you with this a glimpse of the book of Isaiah. And by the way, I've been, I've been working in the chapter, and I, <laughs> I've, been, I've been thinking in the benefit of the reader, you know, because, because this, is, this is not English. I put... I put everything in the, in, I put it in a, in a footnote, just reference, some reference that appears in, um, from the book of Isaiah in, in first Nephi. First, yeah, it is, it is uh, very, very much, you are going to, you are going to, I don't know, uh, uh, I don't know if I have here uh, a short example to move you into that, but uh, but there is astonish the 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 amount of reference that you are going to find out regarding that. It's too many. It's too many. So so technically, uh, if you put um, all those references in one book, from one book into another, with the um, with the basic. Um, you know, draft coming from view of the Hebrews, you are going to have probably 90% of, of, of the Book of Mormon. Um, the idiomatic, idiomatic expressions and lexemes, um, you are going to, to find, for example, it come to pass, appears 700 times around, 700 times in the Bible, but 1,442 in the Book of Mormon, and it came to pass. Uh, all manner of appears 43 times in the Bible, but appears uh, about 110 times in the Book of Mormon. Reference the land of appears 559 times in the Bible, about 430 times in the Book of Mormon. So woe unto appears 57 times in the Bible, 46 in the Book of Mormon. Verily I say, 67, 44 in the Book of Mormon. Be fulfilled appears uh, 60 times in the Bible, 64 in the Book of Mormon. So there are, there are a lot of these tiny things. And, I, and I've been questioning why. Why? It is, it is important this. Um, this is a long quotation coming from, from Gregory Bowen, 
And and I like I like this. By the way, this is a dissertation. You can get that online. So if you put if you type the name um, Gregory Bowen, you might be able to download into your computer and read it in extent. It's about two. 235, I guess, pages, PDF version. And, um, and, and I like very much the title, Sounding Sacred, the Adoption of Biblical Archaisms in the Book of Mormon, another 19th century text. And he says this, Gregory Bowen, Smith's Book of Mormon is not like this other 19th century religious text. He lacked the credential of Campbell, Noyer, and Finney, Charles Finney. He, he's beginning to, um, he, uh, he has been um, developing, that, that's part of the conclusion, by the way, and he has been comparing uh, Joseph Smith with other uh, prominent um, evangelical preachers in those days with their ministerial training and recognition within the Christian community. His text was presented as a translation of ancient scriptures, just like the Bible, but it lacked the Bible's history of authoritative, dative, religious use, stretching back over the better part of the two millennia, and the original source texts were not available for anyone else to examine, to examine its claim to status as a new work of scripture tended to attract more distrust than reverence. Establishing the authority of the text was of critical importance, and that authority could not come from the text heritage or from the man who produced it. I like very much the, the way in which the, this author is, is thinking about. Perhaps, though, it could come from the esteem granted to the language of the King James Bible. I like the, the I like the perhaps. Well, let me, uh, by the way, this is this is a doctoral dissertation in linguistics. So uh, I will say you are going to, to read it and you are going to distinguish and you are going to delight in the use of the language. In this, Smith could use the features of another language style to project an identity other than his own. The Book of Mormon could read not as the work of a poor, chunky farm boy but as the product of an inspired biblical prophet writing on behalf of the Almighty God. So I will say, if you can find this, uh, what I will say, certain, I, I will dare to say that is, in my view, nothing may be near the truth than this, because probably that is part of this. When you enter into, um, in a moment, when you enter into the, into the, by, by the way, this is a, this is a Purdue, um, a Purdue University um, P 
PhD dissertation. This is 2016. And you are going to enter into that and you see that in the, in the, in the front page of, of the introduction, um, there are some, some kind of comments that probably are not in the context of the dissertation. And this, this that I'm presenting here is coming from that. Archaic features are characteristic of the translated text, which make the most consistent and standard use of archaisms. They are not characteristic of the 19th century religious texts generally, but are common to two texts, both of which claim to be new revelations of scriptures, the Book of Mormon and the Holy, the Holy Roll, the Bible. This lack of consistency of the translation and have more mixing and intercorrection in Joseph Smith's letters, archaic features are concentrated in portions where he is relying on revelations in contrast to other tasks such as managing church business and Smith and the other prophetic writer lacked credentials as religious clergy, as religious clergy, and lacked the education in historic English of the translation. And that that you are going to understand why he says, in my writings there were no Greek or Latin, and immediately appears the book Bible, Apostles, Alpha, Omega, and so on. It's very very clear. Uh, so their use of archaisms show that the most reliance of the King James Bible in particular, this inexpert use by writers with a need to establish a sense of spiritual authority indicates that biblical imitation was an active choice used to project an identity as a prophet. I like it. It it is, it is it is good. I I would like to see that in a in a dissertation at Andrews University, by the way. But uh, uh, but it's Purdue Purdue University. It's, it's quite interesting. So conclusion. Um, this is a statement you already saw that the Book of Mormon claims to be. A divinely inspired record uh, written by a succession of prophets who inhabited ancient America. If professes to be revealed, it professes to be revealed to the present generation for the salvation of all who will receive it and for the overthrow and damnation of all nations who reject it. This book must be either true or false, true. If true, is one of the most important messages ever sent from God to man, affecting both the temporal and external interests of every people under the heaven to the same extent and in the same degree that the message of Noah affected the inhabitants of the old world. If false, if false, it is one of the most cunning, wicked, bold, deep laid in positions ever palmed upon the world, calculated to deceive and to ruin millions who will sincerely receive it as the word of God 
and will suppose themselves securely built upon the rock of truth until they are plunged with their families into hopeless despair. The, nat the nature of the message in the Book of Mormon is such that if true, no one can possibly be saved and rejected. And if false, no one can possibly be saved and received it. It's quite interesting. Orson Pratt, an elder of the church. And we, we need to close reminding ourselves the quotation coming from Paul. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. So I guess that we need we need to work with them. We need to pray for them. We need to outreach them. There are good people inside the church. There are people that they don't have an idea about these things. And probably what we need to work out is starting the, the viewing connection of 1944, because from 18, excuse me, 1844, because from 1844, it is starting everything on. That is, that is a critical moment in history, and there is the fulfillment of a prophecy, and the Lord was gathering his, his people, so we need to, to think how to reach them. Let's pray, and uh, I'm going to take some questions uh, that you might have, and thank you for coming along the week. You were very faithful, by the way, <laughs> during the, the attendance, and I hope you have enjoyed this. Let's have a word of prayer. We are going to finish. Father in heaven, thank you for your revelation. Thank you for the Bible. And thank you, Father, for your gospel of salvation. We know, Father, there is no other gospel. There is no. We need to tell the world about it. Be with us and help us in our mission. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.